When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast, Pride. It's been called one of the deadly sins, but what if pride holds the key to human success and flourishing? Well, that's what the argument my guest today makes in her book, Take Pride. Her name is Jessica Tracy, and she's a psychologist at the University of British Columbia. And today on the show, Jessica and I discuss why pride gets a bad rap, the different kinds of pride that exist, and how feeling the good kind of pride is essential to growth, development, and even cooperation. We also discuss how men and women experience and express pride differently and what that means for us. Really fascinating show. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash take pride. Jessica Tracy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, So your latest book or your new book is called Take Pride and it's about the benefits, how pride can actually be a good thing. This this thing that we call one of the deadly virtues. Um, what I think is interesting, you're a psychologist um, and you've written a book about pride, the feeling of pride. And what's interesting about it, there's a lot of ink spilled in academia and psychology about other feelings like happiness, sadness, lust, but there isn't a lot out there about pride. Uh, why is that? You know, I think there's a number of reasons for that, uh, distinction that you're noticing. So, so one thing is that, you know, there's been a lot of research on emotions, as you note, and and that kind of took off really in the 1980s and 90s, psychologists got really interested in studying emotions. And that was largely due to research that had been done by Paul Ekman. And Ekman, uh, he's a big deal in emotion research. He's kind of one of the leaders in the field. And in the 1960s, late 1960s, he actually decided to to sort of put ideas to the test that had first been proposed by Darwin, which was basically the idea that emotions are evolved, that they're a universal part of human nature. And prior to Ekman kind of looking into this, that wasn't really what anyone thought. Even though Darwin said that about a hundred years earlier, the kind of reigning theory of the day in the 1960s, 70s, and earlier was that emotions were culturally specific. So you learned emotions from other people in your social group. That's how you learned what you were supposed to feel in, in any given situation. And that's how you learned how to express those feelings. Um, what Ekman did was he he traveled across the world. He traveled to Papua New Guinea, uh, which at the time was was pretty unexplored by Westerners. And he found groups of people living there who were totally cut off from the Western world. Most of them had never before seen anyone from the West. 
And he basically just showed them emotion expressions, what photos of emotion expressions uh, from shown by Americans. And he asked them how they identify them. And what he found was that these Papua New Guineans identified the emotion expressions that were shown by Americans in the same way that Americans did. And that's really important because it was sort of the first evidence to suggest that emotions aren't specific to each culture, that actually they're universal, right? Because there's kind of no other good explanation for how these people on the other side of the world who have no contact with, with the Western world could recognize emotions in the same way Americans do, unless that's because emotions are universal. Um, and so this was kind of one piece of, of many that came to build this finding that emotions are universal. They're part of our nature. They're, they're something that we evolved to experience as humans, uh, not something that we that were socialized to experience or learn from others. But the thing about this research was that there was kind of a small set of emotions that really were focused on. Ekman basically said there were six emotions that have facial expressions, uh, and, and he found good evidence for that. And then he kind of said, that's all there is. Right. He, he sort of said, there's there's no more than these six. I've, I've looked at the face and he really did. I mean, he knows the face better than anyone else, I think. He said, I've looked at the face and these are the six emotions that are expressed in the face. Um, and those are emotions that you think of, I think, as sort of the most predominant emotions that are really important to our daily lives. Things like anger, fear, sadness, disgust, uh, I think surprise is one of them, happiness. And so so this was a big deal on oh, fear. I forgot fear, I think. Um Anyway, it was a big deal finding, but it basically also meant that any emotions that weren't considered in that list, that didn't seem to have universal facial expressions, they were kind of left behind. They were sort of considered to be less important, less foundational, less fundamental to human nature. And so they received a whole lot less research attention. And of course, pride, even though I think it's incredibly important and we now have research to suggest that it's really important, it was one of those emotions that kind of didn't make the cut. You can't recognize pride from someone else's face alone. It turns out what we found in, in my research is that you can recognize pride and it is universal, but it requires the body as well as the face. Okay. And we'll, um, we'll talk about, um, what that, what pride looks like in a bit, but let's talk about, you know, the, the basic, the, the big picture of your argument here is that pride can be a good thing. Um, but in our modern Western culture, pride has a bad rap. It's considered one of the seven deadly sin, sins. Um, there's been a backlash lately against the self-esteem movement. Um, and there's a perception in the rising generation that it's too narcissistic, too prideful, and unduly proud of themselves. And humility is the virtue that we should aim for. But you say again that you know the title of your book is that pride is the secret to human success. So why does pride have such a bad rap? And how can pride actually be good for us? Well, the reason for that is because it turns out pride is not just one thing. It's actually two pretty different things. And, and this is really confusing for us in English because we just have the one word for it, which is a real problem, I think. You know, we, we use the word pride to refer to uh, the kind of pride that, you know, I think you're referring to as a deadly sin. And, and that's historically the way that many scholars have thought of it. Certainly religions throughout history have talked about pride in this way. And that's pride in the sense of arrogance, right? These, this is narcissism. It's, it's pride in the sense of feeling too much pride, right? Sort of being egotistical about it, self-centered, conceited. Um, and, and that kind of pride is a real thing. Many people feel it and, and we all have the propensity to feel it. And it, it comes with a lot of negative consequences, all kinds of problematic social behaviors that people tend to engage in when they're feeling that kind of pride. But what we found is that that's not all that pride is. There's this whole other kind of pride also, and we call this authentic pride. Um, and authentic pride is much more a sense of self-confidence, 
feelings of self-worth, a sense of accomplishment or achievement or productivity. It's really the kind of pride that we feel when we've worked hard for something and we have an accomplishment. And, And we know that that accomplishment is due to our own efforts, right? That we sort of say, here's what I did to get this success. And, and I feel genuinely good about myself as a result of that success. And what we found is that authentic pride really is very different from what we call hubristic pride, the bad kind of pride. Um, authentic pride actually seems to foster all kinds of positive social behaviors. When people feel it, they tend to care more about others. They want to help others. Uh, they feel good about themselves, but in a way that lets them also kind of care about the community. Whereas hubristic pride makes people feel good about themselves in this way that makes them not care about others. And in fact, at times they will use others. They'll actually sort of put others down in order to feel good about themselves. So really different emotional experiences in in almost every way, but they're both part of what pride is. And are there any cultures that have differentiated the two? Like they have like in America or in the West or English, it's like pride is, you know, it's how we describe both of these types of like the hubristic pride and the authentic pride. Are there any languages that have words that differentiate, differentiate between the two? Yeah, you know, I've looked into this a bit, and from what I can tell, absolutely, that's the case. Now, I'm not a native speaker of any of these languages, so, you know, people who who speak them better than me might take issue with this. But from what I understand, uh, yeah, French, Italian, all, basically all the Romance languages do make this do make this a distinction. So in Italian, I think it's a, a Fioretta or Fioretta is, is more authentic pride. It's kind of this fierce, excited kind of pride, uh, whereas, or I'm going to totally butcher this, but orgoglio uh, is more of what we would think of as hubristic pride, more of an arrogant pride. And, and in, uh, that's Italian, but French has very similar words to that as well. Um, so so the, the lack of a distinction is partly a restriction of, of English in particular. Many, many other languages do seem to actually make this distinction in a more concrete way. Okay. So you said earlier um, that Ekman, you know, he just focused on these six types of emotions and he said, yeah, these are the ones that are universal. Pride didn't get on that list and make the list, but you're saying your research shows that, yeah, pride is in fact uh, universal. So what's the explanation? Why do humans feel pride? What's the evolutionary psychological explanation for it? Well, what we think is that people evolve to feel pride because it ultimately helps us get status. It helps us climb the social ladder, basically be looked upon by others in our group as someone of influence. And it helps us do all the things that we need to do in order to get influence and power over others. And of course, having influence, having power is really adaptive in an evolutionary sense. People who have more influence over others have a better control over the group's shared resources, uh, more access to better mates, all kinds of things that basically end up enhancing our, our ability to survive and reproduce. So um, how, how, do, how were you able to determine that this is indeed a universal emotion? I mean, what, are, what does pride, both hubristic pride and authentic pride, what does it look like or what does it feel like uh, within the person? Yeah. So, I mean, to, to figure out whether it's universal, we kind of just followed the Ekman protocol. Um, you know, like I said, he he studied facial expressions and, and traveled all over the world to, to see if people in different countries recognized them and showed them in the same way. We basically did the same thing with pride. And what we did was we sort of realized, you know, yes, pride is not just going to be in the face. Sure. When people feel pride, they smile, but that doesn't really look any different than happiness. But they also do stuff with their body, right? And this is something if you know, if you take a minute to think about it, we all know this. When people feel pride, they make themselves bigger, right? They expand their posture, they push out their chest, they might tilt their head up a bit. Um, they basically take this wide stance and and it and it's noticeable, right? We we know when someone feels pride because we see them, we see them become this kind of expansive um person. 
And so what we did was we took photos of people doing exactly that, kind of different variations of it, lots of different variations. And we showed these photos to other people. And so we started just, you know, in California where I was in grad school and we found that, yes, Californians recognize pride. They all agree when we show them this photo, they say, yeah, that's pride. And they say, in fact, not only that's pride, but also that's not some other emotion. It's not happiness. It's not other emotions that look similar to pride. It's actually distinct to pride, that particular display. Uh, and then we then we went beyond California and we ended up traveling across the world to Burkina Faso, West Africa. Um, and we managed to find a group of people there who were sort of tribal villagers, much like the people that Ekman studied in Papua New Guinea, very cut off from the Western world. They couldn't read or write. They only spoke their local dialect. They'd never traveled far from their village. And we showed them photos of people showing this pride display. And they showed the same thing. They also agreed that that was pride and not some other emotion. So that's nice evidence for for kind of universality, that people in cultures all over the world who are unlikely to have been exposed to a pride expression, you know, in in a Western movie or magazine or something like that, because these are people who don't really have access to those things, they still understand pride in the same way that Americans do. Um, And then the last thing we did on this point is we said, okay, well, what about displaying pride? Do people actually display this expression all over the world or people from countries all over the world when they're feeling pride? And so to get at that issue, what we did was we um, we said, let's let's take a look at a situation that causes people to feel pride that people from countries all over the world engage in at the same time. And so the Olympics kind of provided an ideal opportunity for this, right? Because here you have people succeeding in this incredible way, uh, probably the most intense pride of their lives when they win a medal. And of course, since the Olympics, you have countries from you know all over the world. So we simply took a look at, at photos that were taken and we were able to get access to photos taken by an official photographer in the judo competition in the 2004 Olympic Games, which meant that we had photos right from on the mat. So really close up, high quality images of exactly what these athletes did immediately after they won their match. And sure enough, what we found is that if they won their match, they tended to show all of the behaviors that we had previously found to be part of this recognizable display. And so that included things like expanded chest, head tilted up, smiling, but also these really important body movements, right? Arms extended out from the body, either raised above the head with hands and fists, sometimes uh, crossed on on the chest or uh, at sides, sort of in this akimbo position with hands on hips. All these displays we found tend to be shown by winners more than losers that held for people from countries all over the world. It was the case for men and women. And then most interestingly, we were able to get a blind sample because we had photos from the Paralympics as well. Turns out in the Paralympics, there's a blind judo competition. And we were able to look at congenitally blind people, people who've never in their lives seen a pride expression, right? Because these are people who are born blind. They've never been able to see. And we were able to document the same thing in them. So, So this is a group of people who you know, inarguably could not have learned to display pride from watching what it, uh, it looks like when others show us, because these are people who, who've never been able to see, and yet they show that same display. So that I think is really nice evidence for for universality. And is there a difference between, you know, how someone displays authentic pride? Because I think like Olympics, that's a great manifestation of authentic pride. You work really hard, you have this accomplishment and hubristic pride. Is there a difference the way people display those two types of pride? We've looked pretty hard for that. We haven't found much on that front. You know, we, we've done things where we've sort of said that we think this one looks, you know, maybe when someone has their hands on their hips and kind of in that, um, you know, it uh, seems a little arrogant kind of posture when, they, you know, they're pushing their chest out and um, something about their face looks arrogant. We've tried. We've shown those photos to people and said, come on, is this is this more arrogant or is it more confident? We don't tend to get much agreement on that. Um, my guess is there, there are big cultural differences in that. You know, I think in some cultures, it's so unacceptable to display any pride at all that even, you know, pride expression that might seem to us pretty authentic would seem to them hubristic simply because it seems arrogant to just, just show any pride. 
Um, so I think that's going to be a factor. You know, we have found that when, when we tell people other things about the person, like you know, this person, he thinks he's really great. You know, we sort of suggest this person's pretty arrogant. Then people will say, oh yeah, that, that display suggests hubristic pride, but it's not based on the behaviors alone. It seems to be based on the behaviors combined with some sort of contextual factor. All right. So just to clarify, so, um, you found um, societies where pride displays are looked down upon. They don't encourage it, but yet these people were still able to recognize pride displays. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. So this, the society that I looked at Burkina Faso that I mentioned before, pride isn't particularly kind of, what should I say? It's not a particularly highly valued emotion. Um, you know, it's really, it's, this is a very small scale subsistence society. Most of their efforts are focused literally on kind of surviving, right? Finding enough food for, for themselves and their family. Um, and so thinking about an emotion that makes you feel good about yourself and status isn't really a central part of, of their society. And yes, they recognize pride. But in addition to that, we also did a study in Fiji. And Fiji's neat because they're actually a culture where pride is, is explicitly downplayed and sort of unacceptable. And this is a group, this is a culture where um, status differences are incredibly sort of determined by birth. They're really hard and fast rules. There's no movement. It's not like, you know, America where, you know, theoretically anyone can, can get high status. It's kind of the opposite of that. You're either born into it or you're not. And if you're not, you need to show that in your behaviors and the way that you interact with people in almost everything you do. Status differences are a huge part of daily life in this Fijian culture. And so the result of that is a display like pride, which which is seen as sort of a way of saying, hey, you know, I deserve higher status, is really not acceptable. And so when we showed people pride displays, they recognized it as pride. And then they would also say, that's not a high status display. We'd say to them, you know, does this person have high status? And they would say, no, not really, because it's so unacceptable to do that. You know, if you're low status, that's the last thing you would do. And if you're high status, you also wouldn't show this display because it would sort of be seen as lording your status over others, right? Because your status is never in question. You have it due to heredity. You don't have to, you don't have to do that. And so that's also unacceptable. But the neat thing that we found was when we when we looked at people's unconscious automatic associations, their kind of responses to the pride display that they can't help going beneath kind of the surface of what they tell us, then what we found was, in fact, they did see these pride displays as high status. When we, when we probed for sort of their, their unavoidable unconscious responses, they couldn't help but show a tendency to see pride displayers as people who deserved high status. And I think that's pretty cool because what it tells us is that even in this culture, we're at an explicit level where, you know, what their culture says is pride displays are not okay. They're not high status. Even in a culture like that, because of this evolved tendency that we have as humans to see pride displays as signals of high status, we see evidence of it in, in these people's unconscious responses. Yeah, that's really interesting. So we, we do that. We put the fist in the air. That is just a way to show it to others that, yeah, we are awesome and you should give us <laughs> status. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, I think the extent to which we do it purposely or intentionally versus automatically is always a question, right? Because we can control our pride displays. This is something we can choose to regulate. Like most emotion expressions, we can sort of say, I'm feeling it, but I know it's not okay to show it right now. So I'm going to tamp it down. And I think, you know, in many contexts and many cultures, that's what people do much of the time because pride is really regulated by cultures because it has such a strong impact on status. When we see people display pride, we have this automatic tendency to see them as high status and we decide they deserve high status. So the result of that is you have this really powerful display that can really mess with a society's status rules. Society counteracts that by saying, okay, here's all the rules we're going to create about when it's okay to show your pride and when it's not. Okay. And we'll talk about some of those rules here later on. Um, besides the external, um, manifestations of pride like what does what happens with inside of our bodies biologically when we feel pride 
You know, I think we know a lot less about that. There's, there's certainly, you know, this is all kind of a new area of research. And so the biological side of it, even any emotion is kind of something we're just learning about now. And we know more about it for things like anger and fear. We know a pretty good deal about that. For pride, you know, we certainly would expect to see increases in the hormone testosterone, which is all about high status, or it's, it's largely about high status, I should say. And there's some evidence to suggest that that's the case. You know, there's, there's research um, that's been kind of widely talked about from Amy Cuddy and Dana Carney and others suggesting that when people pose a display that looks a lot like pride, but they call it power posing, but it's basically the pride display, they show increases in testosterone. Now, I don't know if you've heard, there's questions about whether those findings replicate widely. And, you know, I, I don't do that research, so I can't really speak to that. But theoretically speaking, we would expect to see links between pride and testosterone. You know, maybe not when you pose it in the moment, but just in general, when you genuinely feel pride or when, when you feel yourself gaining in status, there is evidence that status gains are linked to testosterone. And so that's something that we would expect. And then you also mentioned in the book, serotonin, the neurotransmitter. Yeah serotonin. Yeah. Yeah. So there's nice evidence from the animal literature more than the human literature to suggest that sometimes when animals increase in status, they actually show serotonin increases, which is kind of surprising in many ways. Cause we think of serotonin as very, it's sort of the happiness <laughs> neurotransmitter, right? It's, you know, people who are depressed take drugs that are serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which basically means they increase serotonin levels in the brain, making people feel a greater sense of contentedness. Um, and so it's interesting that that would be associated with high status. But the thinking in, in the in the literature on this is that it, it's a particular kind of high status. It's a high status that's really about social um, popularity. So people, people who are high in serotonin, if they're high status, it's going to be of the sort of high status where they get along really well with others. Others like them. Um, they are sort of good, good social communicators, that kind of thing. And so Theoretically, it would make sense that authentic pride, which really is all about increasing the form of status that we call prestige, which is a status that basically involves being well-respected by others, having accomplishments that then others see as, as valuable to the group and others want to learn from you and work with you. That kind of status, which is so social in nature, theoretically should be linked to serotonin. Now, we don't, you know, there's no evidence yet for a link between authentic pride and, and serotonin. So this is all sort of theoretical, but I, I would expect to see that. Okay. So let's, let's carry this conversation about prestige or different types of status. Um, so prestige is one type of status. And as you said, it's um, connected to, you know, being well-respected, well-regarded, being useful to those around you. But then there's another type of social status that's not as friendly. Uh, what's that other type of social status and uh, what are its characteristics? Yeah. So, so the distinction we make is between prestige and dominance and dominance is a status that it's, it's, you still have power. It's, it's a very, we found that people who are dominant do have influence over others, but it's not because they contribute something of value to the group or, or they're respected. It's actually because they're, they're seen as threatening that basically these are people who have control over some resource that others want. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe they're just physically stronger. You, know, you can think of this in chimpanzees where it's the physically strong chimp that becomes the most dominant. And they, they wield that control in a manipulative and aggressive way, essentially literally threatening people, making them think that, listen, if you don't do what I tell you, I'm going to hurt you or I will take away something of value to you. So this is the boss who, who threatens to fire her employees if they don't do what she says, right? So these are people who do have power and you can imagine that boss being quite influential. Her employees are going to do exactly what she says, but they're not doing it because they want to, right? They're not deferring to her out of choice. They're deferring to her, in fact, because they feel they have no choice at all. Okay. And so connecting this to the types of pride, so authentic pride would be a channel to uh, prestige status and hubristic pride would be a channel to dominant status? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you think about what authentic pride does for us, basically it's this emotion that makes us feel good about ourselves for our accomplishments, for the specific kind of hard work that we put in to achieve. And then it makes us want to be nice to others. There's good evidence to suggest that when we feel authentic pride, we care more about others. And these are exactly the kinds of behaviors that would get one prestige because you have a person who's going to be working hard to achieve in ways that are valuable to the group and then caring about others, being nice to others. And that's really important for prestigious leaders. These are people who get power because they want to help others, right? Others want to defer to them because they think, here's someone who I admire, he's got all these accomplishments, and he's going to help me learn from him. I'm going to, I'm going to learn valuable skills that he already knows, and that's really important. So prestigious leaders kind of need to be nice to others and helpful to others. Dominant leaders, in contrast, they get their power kind of explicitly from being not nice to others, right? These are people who are threatening and they're intimidating. They essentially force others to do what they want by telling them, look, you're going to be sorry if, if you don't do that. And hubristic pride, hubristic pride basically is this emotion that makes people feel superior to others. It makes them believe I'm better than everyone else around. It makes them feel aggressive and disagreeable. People who tend to feel hubristic pride tend to become antisocial in various ways. They're, they're not very nice to others. Um, they are manipulative at times. They're more willing to engage in, in what we call misbehavior, whether it's petty crime or lying or cheating. Um, all these behaviors are exactly the kinds of things that we would expect to see in someone who's going to attain dominance, sort of a willingness to get ahead at the expense of others, to use others toward getting ahead, basically to be a bully. So, but again, going back, dominant status does work, but in the long run, does it, does prestige status do better? Well, you know, I mean, that's, that's a great empirical question. And I would certainly like to think so. What we have found is that both kinds of status get people power. So we brought students together in groups to try to work together just to see how hierarchies emerge. And what we do is we have them do this task together. And then afterwards we ask them to tell us who was the most influential in the group, how influential was everyone, and then tell us how prestigious and how dominant everyone else was. And then we also get outside observers, people who watch videos that we make of these interactions, and they tell us who is most influential as well. And what we find is that both dominant and prestigious people end up with a lot of influence. So the people who are, are seen as dominant, which means other people on their group say, I didn't like him, I was afraid of him, right? Literally, I was afraid of him. Those people still get power. They're seen as highly influential by the people they worked with, and they're seen as influential by people who are watching from outside. And they actually have influence. When we look at sort of decision-making over you know, what happens in that interaction, what happens at the task, the dominant people have just as much uh, influence in, in the sense of actually making the decisions as do prestigious people. So both dominance and prestige actually work in terms of getting influence over a group. However, there are real differences. So the prestigious people come out of that situation being well-liked, right? Everyone had a good time working with them. They liked them. The dominant people are not well-liked. Uh, the people don't like them. And so you can imagine a situation in which, yes, both get power, but there's certain value to, to having power and also being well-liked versus having power. And then the moment that people have a chance to take you down, they're going to do that, right? I mean, eventually groups form co coalitions against leaders they don't like and, and topple them, right? And so when you have a dominant leader, that's what's going to happen. The group's always going to be looking for an opportunity to get rid of that person. And so in the long run, it's probably not going to be a particularly adaptive strategy. Whereas someone who's prestigious, the group is not looking for an opportunity to get rid of them at all because the group really likes them. So even when they're no longer as valuable, say at some point they no longer have the wisdom or the skills that they once had that, that originally earned them the prestige, the group still isn't going to try to oust them, right? The group might not, you know, they might find someone else to, to sort of, you know, lead as well, but the group will always find a place for a prestigious person because they like them, right? When you care about your leader, you're not going to uh, sort of try to get rid of them. You're going to try to find a place and, and a way to keep them. 
Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family? when I'm gone, if something happens to me. Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. 
So recently I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss, a lot of useful information in there, talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Yeah, we've had uh, Richard Wrangham on the podcast oh, yeah, to cool. talk about uh, demonic males. And he, he, yeah, he found the same behavior amongst chimpanzees is that yeah. there'll be a super assertive, aggressive chimp that will take the lead. But after a while, the monkeys get tired of it. And they, he calls them election seasons and they'll all coalesce together and like, you know, have a coup and kick that right. guy out. That's exactly right. Yeah. And now, you know, chimpanzees don't have prestige. Prestige seems to be unique to human, uh, to the humans species. And so, so that's why you're going to see that kind of thing where when you have prestige, if you have a hierarchy based on prestige, there's no reason to kick out a prestigious leader. So it should work very differently. Well, in going circling back to, um, testosterone and its connection to, uh, dominance pride. So, I mean, this is the art of manliness podcast. Is there a type of pride that men tend to lean towards authentic or hubristic? What we found is that most people tend toward authentic pride. So if we just measure these two things, levels of authentic pride are always higher than hubristic pride. And that might be partly due to what we call social desirability, right? It's not a very socially acceptable thing to tell us that you experience things like arrogance on a regular basis. And so that might be influencing things. But in general, people tend more toward authentic pride. Now that said, we do find a gender difference in hubristic pride, which is to say, on average, men report experiencing higher levels of hubristic pride than women do. However, men still report even higher levels of authentic pride. Okay. And, and, and I thought it was interesting in your book, you talk going back to the usefulness of dominant, um, dominant social status and uh, prestigious social status, that there are certain instances where one does better than the, like it, it's, it's more useful than the other. So like, and what would be a situation where dom, like a dominant strategy, sort of the assertive, very aggressive, overbearing um, status strategy would be better than say prestige? Yeah. Well, this is really neat. We found this in a study. This is another study where we had groups work together to solve problems and work on tasks. And this time we assign leaders. So rather than just let the leader emerge naturally, we specifically assigned one person in the group to, to lead the group. And then we measured whether that person tended toward a dominant or prestigious strategy. And we did that just by asking the other people who worked with, with him or her, you know, was this person prestigious? Was this person dominant using various uh, measures that we have for that? And and then we looked at outcomes. So we actually had had ways of scoring the tasks that people did. And they did a bunch of tasks that required sort of complicated logical analysis, problem solving. And then there were some tasks that involved creativity. Uh, for example, there was this task where you have to think of as many creative uses for a brick as you can. And it's kind of a fun one. People end up, you know, if they're good at it, they'll say all kinds of crazy things for using a brick. And if they're not, they'll say, you know, building a house. And that's kind of where it ends. Um, and so what we were interested in is whether the groups who were led by someone high and prestigious would do better than the groups that were led by someone high and dominant. And that's kind of what we expected, right? We thought, yeah, these dominant leaders, sure, they get control over a group, but no one likes working for them. No one likes them. So the group is not going to do well. But in fact, that's not what we found. And actually, we had three different tasks that required problem solving, sort of analytic thought. For all three of those tasks, groups did better if they were led by a dominant than if they were led by a prestigious person. The only thing that groups did better on if they were led by a prestigious person was the creativity task, the, the brick task, basically. 
And I think that makes sense. They did better on that because to be creative, you have to be really comfortable. You have to feel safe kind of spitballing ideas, you know, not worry about someone belittling you as as a dominant leader might. So it does make sense that prestigious leader fostered, you know, greater creativity. But I think it's, it's surprising in some ways that, you know, the dominant leader was the one who actually led people to success on these other tasks, these analytic tasks. My thinking there is that the prestigious leader was really concerned about consensus, right? Prestigious leaders care about including everyone, make sure, make sure everyone's voice is heard. And when you have 20 minutes to solve a few problems, sure, consensus is great, but you really need to come to a clear answer. And it may be the case that in that situation, the dominant leader was better able to say, look, I don't want to hear from you anymore. We've heard from you. I want to hear this person. Okay, this is the answer we're going with. Making a firm decision, not worrying about hurting others' opinions, you know, kind of going with with whatever he or she believed to be to be correct based presumably on um, the kind of feedback that other people were giving. We we don't really know. Um, And that ended up being more successful. So when deadlines are short, you want, you want the dominant guy, the dominant boss. I mean, you give the example of Steve Jobs as an example of that, where he, he demanded these, like what seemed like impossible things and he, on a short time frame. And I guess the usual route that sort of these creative types that work at Apple be like, well, let's, let's work together. Let's get a consensus. But he was like, no, like here, solve the problem now. And they, they did it. They did it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'd like to think there's a third option as well. <laughs> you know, I'd like to think that because, because there's a downside too. yes, these people, these groups were solving tasks. Yes. The people who were for Steve jobs, you know, made amazing, amazing techno- technological innovations, but they didn't like it. People don't like working for Steve jobs. They're not happy in their work. And, and that's what we found in our study as well. The people who worked with a dominant leader weren't happy. They didn't enjoy the study. They didn't enjoy the task. They didn't like the leader. They didn't feel good about themselves. Whereas the people who worked for a prestigious leader, they had all those things. They were really happy. They had a good time. They felt pride in themselves. They liked their leader. So what we really would like, obviously, is both, right? We want people to be happy, feel good about themselves, like their leader, but also get the job done. It's possible that you could have a prestigious leader who fosters all those good feelings, but also takes into account the way that a dominant person might wield control and, and you know, the kind of expectations a dominant person sets and perhaps can, can you know, say at times, listen, I'm not going to look for consensus. This is the time where we need to solve the problem and sort of take that perspective and, and solve it that way. That would be my hope. You know, I mean, the study that we did, the other thing is it's very different to assign someone to be the leader of a task and just kind of say, listen, you've been chosen. You're all equal. You know, you're all undergrads coming in to do this study, but we're randomly selecting you to be the leader. And if that person tends toward, you know, the prestige style, they might feel uncomfortable actually sort of taking charge in a real serious way where they say, no, I'm going to go with your decision and not yours. It might in that situation require someone who's got the more dominant personality to be able to do that, to override people who he or she knows are actually his, his equals, right? Um, in real life situations, people typically get to the top, you know, in other ways, they're not randomly assigned to be the leader. And so in those situations, it's possible that prestigious leader would feel more comfortable you know, drawing a conclusion without reaching consensus. All right. So being able to mix it up, I guess, I guess status, be statusly adroit is the Yeah. I think, I mean, that might be one solution. I, you know, Steve Jobs did have both. It's fair to say he was definitely dominant. I mean, based on lots of reports of people working with him, he could be a real unpleasant person to work for, but he also, I mean, in many ways, he's a creative genius, right? I mean, he had incredible ideas and that's prestige, right? Being able to see things and and have a vision and then portray it to others and, and convince others to follow you that's prestige. So he definitely is someone who wielded both strategies quite effectively. So let's talk about people who do make that um, trip up to the top. And they often do that through authentic pride and using prestige status to get there. But is it possible to switch to hubristic pride and dominance status once you get to the top? 
Yeah, I think that does happen. I think it's not uncommon. Um, in the book, the example I give of this is actually Lance Armstrong. Um, and, and the reason for that is because he's someone who we know, you know, in his early life, he had to be motivated by authentic pride, right? I mean, he, the hours that he put in on a bicycle when he was just, you know, a teenager, it's pretty incredible. And, and one of the big arguments I make in the book is that authentic pride is what motivates us to do things that are boring, you know, tedious, actually painful when there's an easier option, right? And in our daily lives that we often have a situation where we don't have to, we don't have to ride our bike for 20 hours at a time. You know, we don't have to work really hard to, you know, ace every exam. We could, we could get B pluses, you know, we could even get Bs. We could get by, in other words, without going above and beyond. But because we evolved to have the sense of self that we care so deeply about and we, you know, are so motivated to feel good about ourselves and, and feel authentic pride in the kind of person that we are and the kind of person we want to be, we will end up putting in that extra work, basically going, you know, going the extra mile, whatever it is, sacrificing pleasure and even subjecting ourselves to pain in order to get these positive feelings about our sense of self. And that's, I mean, Lance Armstrong is as good an example of anyone of that because I mean, he just put in so much work as a young man to become the fastest cyclist in the world, he had to be doing that because he genuinely wanted to be the fastest cyclist in the world, right? That was his ideal sense of self. He wanted to be this person who was faster than anyone else. But then of course we know something changed, right? At some point, we don't know exactly when, at some point he stopped actually trying to be the fastest cyclist in the world and started doing whatever he could to be perceived as the fastest cyclist in the world. And in cycling, as in many things in real life, there's an easier way, right? It turns out he was able to use doping to sort of get ahead without actually, you know, being the fastest cyclist. He could, he could seem to be the fastest if he was cheating. This is an option that's available to many people, you know, in, in various ways that we could either work really hard to actually have that achievement, or we could find an easier way to get the praise, to get the adulation of others without actually putting in the hard work, sometimes through explicit cheating other times, you know, rather than you have an achievement, rather than keep working hard for the next achievement, you're going to find ways to publicize your achievement to others, right? Maybe you'll brag about it. Maybe you'll, you know, make sure everyone else knows about your achievement. And that's a way to keep those feelings going without actually putting the hard work in. Um, and it's, it's really tempting to do that. You know, I mean, we, I think we can all see once we start feeling those pride feelings that we've worked so hard for, it's, it's, it's a pleasurable feeling, right? I mean, those, that's the motivation that got us there. But that is when authentic pride flips to hubristic pride. As soon as we start thinking about the praise that we're getting from others, how we're seen by others, and sort of easier ways of getting that praise rather than the hard work that we put in to get there, that's when we're, we're fixating on hubristic pride and, and a sort of more artificial sense of pride rather than the authentic pride that's based on achievements. Yeah, and I think this is connected to Carol Dweck's work about growth and fixed mindsets. It seems like people yeah. with a hubristic pride have that fixed mindset, like, I am awesome, I am mm -hmm. smart. Don't have to yeah. work for it. And then, you know, she's found studies that um, students, you know, high school students perceive themselves as smart. That's where they think other people, like they're more likely to cheat, um, right. to maintain that as opposed to a student with a growth mindset who's willing to put in the extra work to actually learn the topic. That's exactly right. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it makes sense, right? That if all of a sudden what you're focused on isn't being the best, but seeming like the best, the last thing you want to do is actually challenge yourself, right? Because if you challenge yourself, you could fail. You could not seem like the best, right? Of course, to be the best, you have to challenge yourself. You're never going to actually be the best unless you keep pushing yourself harder and harder. So as soon as you start to care more about performance, right, how others perceive you, whether it's performance goals or hubristic pride, which is, which is this artificial sense of superiority, you're not going to put in the hard work. You're not going to challenge yourself. You're going to look for an easier way to make sure others think you're great, and you're going to avoid 
anything that could actually threaten that. And so how do you avoid that? How do you avoid that, uh, you know, success going to your head and you're shifting to a hubristic pride mindset? It's tough, you know? I mean, I think, I really think this is where understanding this distinction becomes really important because, you know, I think this is why a lot of, a lot of cultures, a lot of religions, like we started out talking about have said, well, pride is bad, you know? So then their answer is don't feel pride at all. As soon as you start feeling pride, you're sinful, you're, you know, that's a bad place to be. And that really puts people in a bind because we're hardwired to feel pride. Right. And so telling us not to feel something that we evolved to feel and we evolved to want to feel that's, that's a pretty tough thing to ask people to do. I think the better solution is to think, well, listen, Authentic pride feels pretty great too, but to get authentic pride, you can't just rest on your laurels. You can't just stop challenging yourself. In fact, if you do that, you're going to veer over into this other kind of pride that we know has all kinds of negative consequences, right? People who feel hubristic pride, you know, they end up lying, cheating, they lose friendships, they lose relationships. I mean, Lance Armstrong is a great example of all these things. Uh, and, And no one wants that. So I think bearing that in mind, you know, as soon as you sort of have that success, watching yourself. What do you do next? You know, do you, do you keep, you know, sure, celebrate the success, feel pride, but then do you keep celebrating? Do you look for new ways of getting praise, new ways of celebrating yourself, or do you look for new ways of accomplishing something? You know, do you think back, how can I keep the cycle going by going for that next goal? Let me think about the next thing I need to do to become the kind of person I want to be versus I'm going to stay right here. I don't want to challenge myself anymore. And I'm going to just maximize how good I feel about myself right now. That's a, that's a real important distinction. Okay. That's a, that's a tricky thing to navigate, but be thoughtful about. Well, so, I mean, okay. So pride is connected to social status and social status is connected to comparing ourselves to others, either negatively or positively. I mean, I think we understand like how hubristic pride can encourage this sort of negative type of comparison, but it seems like in order to have authentic pride, you also have to sort of be aware of your social status amongst your peers and how you can be useful. So um, how can you have authentic pride and you know, compare yourself in a helpful, healthy way? Yeah, that, that question makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. The comparisons to others are going to be part of both pride. And maybe that's kind of what you're getting at, that it's not just, you know, hubristic pride is this really explicit, I'm, I'm better than others. But even with authentic pride, it's hard to sort of have a goal for yourself without thinking about where others stand on, on any particular dimension, right? We sort of were always evaluating ourselves in comparison to others. And that's the case for, for both kinds of pride. We, we kind of can't help it. We're social beings. You know, they are both about status. So it is always going to be about, well, you know, I had this achievement, but my colleague, they, you know, they just had this other achievement. Is my achievement better or worse? Should I really, do I deserve to feel pride in my achievement when my colleague just did this great thing? It's really hard not to do that. Um, And it's really tricky because the more we do it, you know, on the one hand, it can push us, right? If we have a colleague, you know, who's done great things and and we we see them as a role model and want to do, you know, great things like them and and feel pride when we're kind of getting there, that's great. But then once we surpass them, that becomes really tricky because then it's sort of like, oh, well, maybe I'm better than them, right? So that's that's where hubris becomes a risk factor. Um, So I do think I do think it's complicated at the same time it's probably unavoidable, right? It's sort of, we can't just, as much as I would like to say, just figure out who you want to be yourself. Don't worry about anyone else. You know, try to be that person. It's probably not possible, right? As we're figuring out our own goals for ourselves, we're doing that partly on the basis of the goals that we see others around us accomplishing. 
Um, and that that's part of, of being human, being, you know, a social being that's aware of others in our group and, and what they're doing. Yeah. I came across research talking about comparison and, you know, improvement. And they found that, um, if I remember the study correctly, is that if you, it's better to like compare yourself to someone who's just a little bit better than you, cause they have more to teach you cause they're more like you than comparing yourself to someone who's like an expert. Cause that just debilitates you. And you're just like, I'm never going to get better. Um, I think this is the air force Academy. They actually did this. Oh, yeah. Um, unintentionally, they, they stuck people who were sort of like really good students and really poor students. They were thinking that the really good students would help the really poor students, but actually the poor students got worse. Interesting. And then they put um, sort of average students and they found that the average students actually improved more because they were learning. More, the, the comparisons were more uh, in line with each other and they can actually learn more from each other to improve. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. When you're both at the same level, so you're both students, I think that's absolutely right. If, you, if you're if you a really poor student and you're paired with one of the best students, you're just going to feel horrible about yourself, right? Because you're going to see this person who theoretically you shouldn't be that far off from, and yet you are. And that just feels incredibly discouraging. But someone who's a little bit better and you, you can see clearly, okay, here are the steps I can take to get to that level – that can be really encouraging and that can be a great thing. You know, I think it's different when someone's a student and when someone's a teacher, you know, I think teachers, we see them explicitly as a whole different level than us. So there it's okay to have a teacher who's who we see as a real expert and really smart and competent. And that's really important. We want to have teachers that we respect, but there we're not trying to become the teacher. We're just trying to, to learn as much as we can from the teacher. So it's a bit of a different goal. Okay. So um, you, you mentioned earlier that we have these evolved status displays or pride displays. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also, it's, it's kind of tricky because we've, if you display too much uh, pride, then people are like, ugh, that's, you're actually have a little, so I mean, what is the, what does the research say about, you know, modulating your, your pride displays so that people can sense that you, you are, you, you have high status, but yet at the same time, like you don't want to do it so much where yeah. you turn people off. Yeah, no, incredibly complicated also, um, you know, and, and this is something that is complicated also because there's no one size fits all answer. Um, when it's okay to display pride and how it's okay to display pride varies dramatically by situation, culture, social group, uh, you know, country. Um, there are all kinds of differences in this. And this is where I was kind of getting at before that cultures do have all these rules about how we display pride because cultures want to regulate how status works. And, and there's all kinds of cultural differences. And, uh, you know, whether you have a really strict hierarchy or a really mobile hierarchy, one that's flexible, and that's going to play into all this. Um, you know, studies have found, for example, that, um, People who, so, you know, in our study of the Olympics, of course, people show pride. And, and I think that seemed as pretty acceptable. We didn't measure whether, you know, was it acceptable or not. But I think we can agree that when you win an Olympic medal, that's a time where not showing pride would probably be problematic, right? It was sort of say, look, what do you think? You're too good for, for the Olympics even, you know, <laughs> and you want to show your pride. Um, but there's this other study that was conducted in Australia, which, you know, as far as I understand, is very individualistic, much like the U.S., um, and they looked at Academy Award winners and winners of other athletic events, not the Olympics, but various athletic events. And they looked at pride displays that were shown um, either kind of pretty overt and extreme displays versus much more mild and subtle displays. And what they found was that when they had participants who were uh, college students looking at these displays, they knew that they were winners in all these cases. So theoretically, the pride is, is considered appropriate. But when, the, when these people, when these winners showed displays that were really extreme that was considered too much, right? Then, yeah, they said, okay, they're a winner. That's fine. And maybe they'll be high status, but I don't like him. He seems arrogant. I like the other guy better, right? They actually preferred people who showed much more subtle displays because they thought those people are taking into account the feelings of the person who didn't win, 
right? Showing too extreme pride when, when there's a loser as well is seen as antisocial, you know, inconsiderate and, and hubristic. And so people aren't liked as a result of it, even, even in a situation where, you know, winning something really important like an Academy Award, it should be okay to show pride. And yet we do have rules and expectations about this. Right. I mean, that's the tough thing. That's a, an important question for people in our information economy have to figure out. Cause like you have to toot your own horn, right. And mm-hmm. like show right. like, Hey, I got these skills. I'm awesome. But like at the same time, you can't do it so much that people are just like, ugh, like this guy just seems really unsufferable. Exactly. No, it's, it's really complicated and because that is the other side of it that we found is that showing pride does get you status. When we see people show pride, we automatically assume that they're deserving of high status. We're more likely to want to hire them. You know, if you see someone show pride in an interview, we found that we'll hire that person above someone who shows shame. Even if the person who shows shame has a much better resume, we'll still go for the pride displaying person. You know, we like a winner. We like someone who's telling us in their, in their body movements that they have high status. That's something that, that we all want. At the same time, we don't like people who are arrogant. So it's, it's a really tough line to navigate, you know, and I think the people who, who, who are best at it are the people who are the prestigious leaders of the group, right? They're the people who are respected. They're known to be high status. You know, everyone looks up to them, but they're not considered overly arrogant. Um, and, and part of, I think, why they're able to manage that is because of the humility that they're able to display at the same time as, as they're displaying pride. Um, but it is, it's really, it's really complicated. You know, I, I'd say, I guess, concrete advice acknowledging others is always a really helpful way of doing that. While you're crediting yourself, you're also talking about the role that others played. Um, in the book, an example I give of this is when uh, Barack Obama, when he gave his speech after uh, the assassination of bin Laden, he gave this speech and it was a really big deal early on in his presidency. This was back in his first term. He hadn't done a whole lot that people were, were really excited about at that point. So this was a really big deal. And in his speech, it was really sort of calculated to be this great, example of authentic pride and prestige, because he made it clear that he was responsible for this. He used the word I a lot, but he talked about specific behaviors he did. He was very focused on here are the things that I did to get there, which is, you know, very much authentic versus hubristic pride. It wasn't, I'm great. It was, I did this. And then I did this. The other thing he did was he talked about all the other people who were relevant, right? He made sure to give a lot of credit to the military, uh, the, the soldiers who actually went in and, and, and took bin Laden, to the, his advisors who came in with the intelligence, to basically all the people involved, he made sure to give credit. And that's really important because it, it's a way of suggesting, I didn't do this alone. I have a sense of humility, but at the same time, here are the things that I did that I deserve credit for. Yeah, that's that's great. That's a great example. But the the other issue too with you know trying to show some humility while displaying pride is like the humble brag. Like we don't like that. Like where you <laughs> yeah. humbly assert your your pride or your status. Um. It, so what, yeah. what's going on there? Like why why do why does that rub people the wrong way? Where yeah. with the humble brag? My sense is it's because it's too obvious, right? That it's not it's not a humble pride. You know, if, if there was a way, like I think, you know, what Obama did was there was no bragging at all. There was humility and pride. And that's very different than humility and bragging or humility and arrogance, right? And I think those two things don't work together. <laughs> when, when you're clearly bragging, but also kind of trying to play it off and like, but really, you know, I'm not great. Everyone knows that what you really mean is, no, but really I am great. You know, it's, <laughs> if you're actually humble, you don't want to brag, right? And so I think the the combination of the two tells people it's a signal the humility shouldn't be taken seriously. That's sort of just a front. Well, Jessica, this has been a great conversation. Where can people um, find out more about your work and your book so they can delve deeper into this topic? Yeah, well, of course, the book is available anywhere books are sold. And you can also go to, we have a, we have a website for the book at my, um, my research website, and it's ubc-emotionlab.ca. 
and then it's uh, the link, the the tab to to click on to learn about the book is Take Pride, uh, and you can go directly there by doing ubc-emotionlab.ca backslash take dash pride. Um, either way gets you there, and and that's that will tell you all about the book and and how to get it. Awesome. Well, Jessica Tracy, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, good. Thank you. My guest today was Jessica Tracy. She's the author of the book, Take Pride. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about her work at ubc-emotionlab.ca slash take-pride. Uh, we'll have a link to that on our the show notes. Speaking of the show notes, you can check out the show notes at aom.is slash takepride for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you have any audio editing needs or audio production needs, check them out at creativeaudiolab.com. As always, I appreciate the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.